awesome. Oh. Yeah, that's really good. Take a break. All right. Well, yeah, spoiler alert, my name is Rachel. That's the first thing I wrote here. So, but yes, I'm Rachel. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm actually one of our worship pastors. A lot of times you'll see me playing drums. Uh, but this morning I have the honor of sharing with you. Uh, I'm going to begin, I'm going to begin, uh, not begin, continue our series, Jesus Meet Us in Our Tears. So how many of you have heard of the song named Hallelujah? I know what you might be thinking, actually, there's like a lot of songs named Hallelujah, or I'm actually not very good with the names of songs, but I know we've like seen that word a lot. Uh, true, <laughs> it's all true, uh, but I'm talking about a specific song um, that's actually kind of captured multiple generations. It's the Hallelujah written by Leonard Cohen in the 80s. And that's actually been covered hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And if you were born like after 1995, your first introduction to it might have been in Shrek. Yeah, the actual movie Shrek, it's, it's true. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's totally okay. We're just gonna talk about some of the lyrics. Firstly, the word hallelujah. So as defined by google.com, it means God be praised, uttered in worship or as an expression of joy. You see, for many of us, that word hallelujah has become synonymous with joy, right? Hallelujah, he is risen. Hallelujah, he is good. Hallelujah, my sports team won. Hallelujah, I found that parking spot. We typically say or sing hallelujah with joy in our hearts. And so what I love about this song written by Leonard Cohen is that it's actually not one that's like abundantly joyful, or, or he's not like rejoicing, but he's still true to that word, hallelujah. And so I'm gonna talk about a couple excerpts from that song. This first one being, there was a time you let me know what's really going on below, but now you never show it to me, do you? I remember when I moved in you and the holy dove was moving too and every breath we drew was hallelujah. Another part saying, but listen, love is not a victory march. No, it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. And here is a lesser known verse of the song I find particularly powerful. Now I've done my best, I know it wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I've told the truth, I didn't come here just to fool you. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing, nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. Cohen is worshiping even in his trials, even in his doubts, his failures, he's saying hallelujah. I will still rejoice. I have nothing else but my hallelujah. And he's not waiting to be through his pain and sorrow to do so. He is declaring it as he is walking through the storm. And while this is a modern song, we see the same thing all throughout the Bible. You know, the Psalms are overflowing with this posture. Job, time and time again, chooses to praise in the midst of his own suffering. And so today, we're exploring what worship looks like in a time of lament. We're gonna look at the what, why, and hows of worship. So what is worship? Why do we worship? And how do we worship? How do we still say God is good when we are in pain? When we are lost? 
when we're feeling alone. And we're also gonna look at this fella, Job, who beautifully demonstrates worship under like the harshest conditions. We'll also look at a couple other folks who choose worship in the Bible. So before we jump into that, we're gonna pray. Oh God, would you come and meet us here? Thank you that you are worthy to be worshiped. Thank you that we can meet you in joy in sorrow, and all of the above. We welcome you here. Amen. So worship. What is this worship thing? Instead of throwing definitions at you, I actually want to look at examples we see in the Bible. Uh, And specifically, we are going to talk about Job, and we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 20, if you want to get your Bibles ready. And Job has a very long story, and we're not going to cover all of it, but I am going to give you a little bit of background on him, all right? So Job, an upstanding citizen, you know, he's a lucrative businessman, he's a father of 10, and a man who above all else feared God and shunned evil. It says he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Even God described him as blameless and upright, This is a 10 out of 10 guy, all right? But one day, uh, Satan, he came to God after roaming the earth, and Satan challenged God, saying, surely if tragedy struck Job, he would fall. He would curse God's name. And God essentially said to the enemy, do your worst. Within seven verses, Job loses almost everything, has almost everything taken away. Um, All of his flocks were stolen or slain, servants killed, and every single one of his children killed in a single event. It's devastating. Okay, that brings us to Job chapter one, verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You guys, that was not a normal response. Actually, like the shaving of the head and the tearing of the robe, like that was normal for the times, but praising God in that? when his life had just been completely turned upside down, it was bonkers, <laughs> right? <laughs> the book of Job actually goes on for 42 chapters, and his circumstances continue to get worse. This book is filled with his laments, and he comes to God with his despair, with his sadness, even with his anger at God for allowing these things to happen to him. And he continues to turn and say, I will still praise the Lord. You know, honestly, this is a really difficult thing to imagine to do. Our first response to trauma, tragedy, death, and total loss is to praise God. But friends, that, that right there is worship. Worship is an act of obedient intimacy with God. It is transparently bringing 
all we have to the feet of Jesus, our joys and our sorrows. And I wonder, you know, I wonder what our response is when our worlds start to crumble, right? When we lose a loved one way too soon, when we get fired, when injustice is done against us, when we experience abuse, when our names are slandered, what do you do? Where do you turn? And that answer is likely different for each of us. And my invitation is to try worship as your response. You know, I'm a big believer in baby steps, so try it out with something small this week, maybe even today. Begin to make it a habit in your life. Build that response in. And as we begin to make this our default posture in day-to-day troubles, Like when poop really hits the fan, praising God can be the first thing we do. Now, here's the thing. I think one of the challenges with worship and lament is we're taught that they actually don't go together. Or lament and grief is something that we do in private, right? That it's our burden to bear. We need to get through this season and then we can praise God. And I'm not allowed to do that in the midst of others or even at church. And sure, God will meet us in that place of lament, but I need to get to the other side before I can actually say that God is good, that I can actually say, I praise you, God. And so here is what I am proposing. That lament is not a path to worship. That lament is actually a path of worship. Lament is not a path to worship. Lament is a path of worship. Let me read you what Michael Card has to say about this in his book, A Sacred Sorrow. Today, we would ask Job to leave all these negative emotions at the church door. They are not appropriate, nor do they fit inside the narrow confines of our definition of worship. And so likewise, those of us who have done nothing else to offer, have nothing else to offer but our laments, find the door effectively closed in our faces. It cost Job everything to teach us this lesson, and it's time we learned it. Worship is not only about good feelings, joy, and prosperity, though they all are at the heart of it. If this were true, then according to this modern American understanding of worship, the poor have nothing to say, nothing of value to bring to God. While Jesus would pronounce a blessing on those who mourn, we pronounce this curse. Those who labor and are heavy laden can find no place in our comfortable churches to lay their burdens. We reason who could possibly conceive of a God who would want to receive such worthless, empty offerings. But Job desperately clings to such a God, one who encourages us to offer everything to him, every joy and every sorrow all our broken hearts, all our contrite spirits, because he is worth it. Card is saying that we all, no matter the season, no matter the circumstance, can come to God, just like Job did. Even if we don't have anything substantial or positive to offer him. Because God is beckoning us into his presence just as we are.
raw emotions and all. Because his love will never stop chasing us. And because he will never stop being worthy of our praise. So right now, if you haven't been able to tell, we are in a season of lament and repentance at the Duluth Vineyard. And with that, we are taking a look like in depth at our church, our communities, our culture, our values. And we are asking, how do we be the church and community God has called us to be? And we're looking at places where we've gotten that wrong. And so I wanna say here that I both lament and I repent of the ways we've gotten it wrong on this stage sometimes. Specifically with worship. The way we've missed the mark. That has closed the door to those walking in with heavy burdens. And at times, the pressure to perform and the pressure for excellence took the throne that is only meant for God. For the times we've put on a game face instead of transparently coming to Jesus. So God, would you make us new? Would you teach us a new way of worship? Would you make this place where we worship you in every joy and in every sorrow? Because Jesus, you are so faithful to meet us right where we're at and so worthy to be praised. Okay, so that covers some of what worship is and what we hope it to be. But why? Why do we worship? We worship because he is worthy. Again, in a sacred sorrow, Card proposes that true worship begins in the wilderness. One of my all-time favorite Bible verses actually comes from Job as he is crying out, though he slay me, I will trust in him. I will hope in him. God is recognizing, or Job is recognizing that God has allowed the circumstances that he is in the midst of, and even so, God is still his only hope. God is where any goodness has come from. Again, Job chapter one, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. One doesn't get to that place of worship without walking through some wilderness. And I wanna take a look at another example of worship in the wilderness. It's an exodus when Moses is fighting for freedom for the Israelites. And by the way, we don't have the, the time for like the full story of Moses and the Israelites, but we did do a whole sermon series on that last year, and you can find that um, on the internet. Okay, so Moses has been going to Pharaoh telling him, let God's people go. And Pharaoh has been absolutely refusing. So in Exodus 7:16, it says this. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to say, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. So I'll admit, as I've read that verse before, I didn't assign much value to the last three words. Like, yeah, Pharaoh, let them go. They need to worship. Um, but didn't really, didn't really even pay attention to the in the wilderness part. 
But you guys, I think those three words are so telling. God knew that after leaving their captivity under Pharaoh, they would spend many years in the desert. They would endure hardships they hadn't ever faced before. And that is exactly where he wanted to teach them to worship. Show them why he is worthy. And our wilderness looks different from the Israelites, and yet this is still where God wants to meet us and teach us the same thing. You see, in the wilderness, in a place of utter desperation and loss, we find out what our God is worth in a whole new way. For the Israelites, we see God meet them in a lot of practical ways, right? Protection from the enemies, uh, fresh water to drink, food coming literally out of nowhere. (laughs) They painfully learned that in that desert wasteland, God was everything they've ever needed. That he is their protector, their healer, their actual compass at times. He is the truest father. He is the faithful provider. And with that, who else could possibly be worthy of worship? He alone is worthy. While we see the Israelites ascribing God's worth as he meets them in the literal desert, I think for us, we can ascribe God's worth in and through Jesus. Jesus entered the wilderness to find us. We humans were lost. He left his throne to chase after us. And Jesus, he experienced a lot of wilderness, a lot of lament. He was mocked, betrayed, accused, abused, and ultimately murdered. He bore those things because God is worth it. And our relationship with him is worth it. And I I don't know about you, but there are times I very much relate to Jesus. I've been betrayed, I've been hurt, I've experienced abuse, and then I look to Jesus, and I think if he went through those things on a level I can't even imagine, and still say God is worth it, I can do that too. I can worship in the midst of chaos and heartbreak. I can choose to do this worship thing. And that might just be me, but I think every one of us can look at Jesus and his sufferings and see a part of our story in his. In announcements, we did talk about a night of worship next week, and I do want to invite you all to, to make the choice to worship there, to come together and say, he is, he is worthy to lament and to rejoice together, to try this worship thing out in a really intentional way, and maybe coming to God in a way you haven't before. Because Jesus, he found us, and he saved us. He sacrificed everything for us. He paid our bill, he put out our fires, he shone a light in the darkest of nights, And he hung on a cross, pouring out his life so that we could be with God. No strings attached. No conditions. How could he not be worthy of our worship? 
so that they may worship me in the wilderness. God knows that there is pain and loss in that place. And he beckons us to worship in that. And he doesn't say, you know, worship once you're through the wilderness at that like amazing oasis. No, worship in the wilderness. Worship in your lament. Let lament be your path of worship. We worship because he is worthy. So how? How do we do this worship thing? How do we put those pieces together? How do we say, as Job did, the name of the Lord will be praised? I actually believe the answer to that is frustratingly simple. We just do it, (laughs) right? We make the choice to worship. It's simple, but not at all easy, and sometimes even painful at times. Honestly, the last thing we want to do is sing when it comes to our sorrow. And we have to make that choice for ourselves. No one else can do it. And there are times, I think, especially when lamenting, that we have to command our souls to worship. Right? And we see that in the Bible. In Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your, your youth is renewed like the eagles. David, the author of this psalm, is commanding his soul to praise the Lord. And then he goes on to say why he is worthy to be praised. And a quick side note, David wrote so many psalms of worship that I think we can and should learn from. He comes to God with every emotion in the book and consistently turns back to God in worship. And, you know, David, he also spent a lot of time in the wilderness, like in the actual wilderness, but also in a spiritual, emotional, and moral wilderness. We really have so much to learn from David's story. But it turns out that there is only so much time on a Sunday to talk about worship. All right. So as I've helped, actually, I'm going to get some water. It's a little thirsty. Ah, it's good stuff. Okay. So as I've helped lead worship here the last few years, I've had the privilege of walking with folks that actually get up here and lead musical worship, right? We saw that um, earlier this morning. But I've, I, I've got, had the privilege to see the behind the scenes of their lives. And <laughs> I can honestly tear up when I think about the stories I've witnessed in them as they've continued to, to worship for themselves and to lead worship, even in their own personal tragedies. I can think of times myself when I've made that choice too, and in times when I haven't made that choice. But today, I actually want to tell you about someone I met this summer. Let's call her Lily. So Lily is a student I met at Project Timothy. 
which is a week-long training event uh, for high schoolers where we equip them and train them in leadership. And Lily was on one of our, or a couple of our student-led worship teams. And Lily, like a lot of us, was born into a family with a mom and with a dad. And her parents loved her and loved Jesus. But when Lily was a kid, her mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer, which tragically took her life. Losing a parent is devastating, no matter what, but so difficult when you're that young. Years passed, and Lily's dad remarried. So Lily now had a stepmom who was loving and caring and compassionate. Both her parents now are really involved in their church. They show Lily what it's like to serve and love God. And Lily begins to actually do that to herself, to make her faith personal. Right? She's beginning to not only worship, but lead worship. So a couple weeks before Project Timothy, right, this week-long thing, it's kind of, there's a lot going on, happens, uh, Lily gets, receives some bad news. Her stepmom is diagnosed with cancer. Stage four. The same thing is happening again. Same awful, unfair thing. And so uh, her youth pastor reached out to her, like a good pastor does, and was checking in. And he knew that she had said yes to leading worship at this event. And he said, hey, it's okay if we can't lead worship. You are walking through a lot. You're dealing with some really awful news. And here was Lily's response to him. If I can't worship now, in this, when would I ever be able to worship? If I can't worship now in this, when would I ever be able to worship? This is a young teen who has had so much taken away from her, who has unfairly experienced so much grief at such a young age, and who is choosing to still say God is good because he is worthy, and because he is worthy, she can praise him. She is allowing Jesus to meet her in her tears, with a broken heart choosing worship. I wanna be like Lily when I grow up. And that's how you worship. That's worshiping even when you have an out. That is worshiping in lament. You know, when it comes to worship, uh, that's a pretty weighty story, right? Pertaining to choosing or not choosing. But there's also a lot of small choices we can make too. So what about choosing to worship when you don't like the song or the style of music being played? Right? What about choosing to go to church to worship when you've just had a super long week and really all you want to do is stay in your PJs? What about choosing to worship when you're even at church, but your to-do list is just screaming at you, here's what we gotta do, here's all the other things. It's fighting for your attention. There will always be a reason not to worship. 
There will. Big reasons, small reasons. And it's always going to be a decision that we consciously get to make. Is he worthy? And one of the things I love about musical worship is that there are all sorts of songs we sing. Right? We sing songs of lament and repentance, songs that are heavy and make space for our sorrow. And we sing songs of joy and praise and adoration. We need all of them. And as someone who just gravitates naturally towards like the melancholy, dark night of the soul type of worship songs, I have found so much power in singing songs of praise when I have been at my most broken and my most hurting. Songs of praise are like good medicine for our souls. It transforms us and heals us. And you know, Sometimes we just can't sing them yet. Sometimes we just need the lyrics to be sung over us, to let them sink in. And I just want to say, that's okay. That is still an act of worship. There's absolutely value in that too. You're still making a choice to engage in worship. And you know, today, we have the opportunity to enter into all of this worship, right? Uh, as you can see, we, we are having baptisms, which are gonna be really exciting and really joyful, and I personally cannot wait. But I, do, I am gonna, also, also, those of you coming up that know, get ready. I'm not inviting you yet, but soon, all right? But before we kind of jump into that, I wanna acknowledge that uh, for some of us here today, it might be difficult to sing these songs of joy and praise. It just might be, and that's okay. It really is. I just wanna invite you to worship however you need to worship. Whatever that looks like, invite God to meet you where you're at. Respond to him as we sing these songs, because I do invite you to praise him, right? Because friends, he really, truly is worthy. Okay, let's do this, this thing, baptisms. So baptism, it's when you make a choice to publicly proclaim your faith, where you say, God, you are worthy of it all. I trust in you. I put my faith in you. I want to be more like Jesus. Come make me more like you, Jesus. And baptism is something you only need to do once. Maybe you came in today not planning to get baptized, but you have this urge you're longing to, almost like a paper clip being drawn to a magnet. And that friend might be the Holy Spirit, might be God inviting you into this, inviting you into something really special, into a new life with him. And we would love to baptize you today. And if that is you, don't worry about the practicalities. We have sweats in all sorts of sizes. We have towels. The water is warm. And we have a room full of people ready to cheer you on. Okay, let's do it. Baptism time. If you are planning on getting baptized or if you're making that decision right now, I'm going to invite you to come up to the front of the stage. 
Yes. Oh, we're already doing so good. <coughs> All right. So one of the cool things about baptism is that it is a public profession of faith. And so I'm going to ask you some questions. All right, are we ready? Or I'm going to ask you some questions, and together you can respond by yelling, I do. All right, does that check out? Instructions clear? All right, good, good. Here are our questions. Do you believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord and King, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life and grace? Nice. Do you renounce Satan and all his works and all his ways? Do you confess your need for forgiveness of sins and with a humble heart put your hope in God's mercy and your whole trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior? And with his help, do you seek to follow him, becoming more like him until you see him face to face? I do. I do. What, did I say that weird? Oh, should I say it again? And with his help, do you seek to follow him, becoming more like him until you see him face to face? I do. Okay. I wholeheartedly do. Wonderful. <laughs> Love it. All right. So let's pray real quick. And I'm going to invite you all to stand with us, pray with us, cheer with us, and worship with us as these amazing folks get baptized. Holy Spirit, come. Thank you for your hand on our lives. Thank you for the new life you are calling these folks into. We welcome you. We praise you. Amen.